a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We are in the book of 1 Samuel. Last time we looked at 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, and in particular at the wickedness of Eli's sons. Remember that, Hophni and Phinehas? At the weakness of Eli to deal with them as he should have. And we looked at God's pronounced judgment on them. We also saw that God was raising up a new judge, a priest and a prophet in this person of this young man, named Samuel. You may remember that uh, a few months ago, we talked about the Tabernacle of David. We did a study of the Tabernacle of David. If you didn't see that, you may want to go back and look at that. It's a fascinating part of scripture. But anyway, during that study, we took a little time to look at some of the stuff that's in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel. So this may seem familiar to you. You may seem like you've heard this before kind of recently. But I really strongly encourage you, if you uh, if you haven't listened to the study on the Tabernacle of David, that you take time to do that. But I want us to look at that count again, just to keep the context in mind here as we work through 1 Samuel. So in chapter 4, we find Israel once more at war with their perennial enemy, the Philistines. By the way, let me say this about the Philistines. They were very, very powerful. They were a continual nemesis for Israel. And they were actually pretty sophisticated for the day that we're talking about here. They occupied that southwest part of the Holy Land, bordered by the Mediterranean Sea. And we call it the Gaza Strip today. Uh, the Philistines were people who had immigrated into the Promised Land from Greece. They'd come from Greece to the island of Crete. And then they'd come from the island of Crete on down to the southwestern coast of the Promised Land. And they had several cities in that area, included Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Gerar. There were several cities there in that area. And they were technologically advanced, certainly more than the Israelites were or their surrounding neighbors. And that was because of the influence of their Greek background. Greek had developed some more advanced warfare technology than the peoples here had. So I'm talking about helmets and shields and chain mail and armor and swords and spears and things like that. So in chapter 4, we find Israel really suffering under the superior Philistine army. Look at verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. You may remember that someone among the Israelites got what seemed to them to be a brilliant idea. Remember this? They thought, let's get the ark. We'll get the ark out of the tabernacle, which was at Shiloh, and we'll take it into battle with us. Verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. 
So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned of the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The problem was, as you can probably see just by reading this passage, they were not really repenting of their sins. They weren't not humbly turning back to God. They were trying to use God. They were actually trying to use the ark uh, as a representative of God to get what they wanted. You know, that's kind of contemporary, isn't it? (laughs) Many times when we in America have come to some period of crisis, we'll find the church attendance goes way up for a little while. And what, why does that happen? Well, it's because they hope the Lord will do what we want him to do, bring us through this crisis, solve this problem, defeat this enemy. So we think this is a little out of our hands, so we'll look to the Lord. And then as soon as we feel like we've got it back under control, we tend to walk off and forget him, just like the Israelites did. One of the reasons prosperity gospel preachers are so popular in our day is that people hope they will get what they want from these guys or from God, you know, that these guys are going to give them the key to get God to do what they want God to do. So it's really all about them. It's not all about God. It's kind of learning how to use God. And a lot of people have that attitude. A lot of people come to regular churches, Baptist churches with that attitude. It's really sad. But our attitude as God's kids must be, Lord, you know what's best for me and for the people I'm praying for. You know what will bring you the most glory. And I just want to cooperate with that. So I'm making my request because you told me to but I'm not going to try to manipulate you. For one thing, you know better than I do what's best. And so I just want to learn how to trust you completely, Lord. So whether I live or die, that's kind of irrelevant. We're here for your glory. And we know if we keep our eyes on you, whatever may come, Lord, we're going to experience the greatest possible joy and the greatest possible peace and the greatest possible significance and meaning in life that we can experience as we keep our focus on you and bring you glory. But God will not be used as a magic genie to just give us what we want. He's not there for me. I'm here for him. (laughs) Let's not get confused about that. It was not okay for the ark to be kind of a magic box that would get them the victory they wanted. So it didn't work. The Philistines were again successful against the Israelites. They captured the ark. And the same day the Philistines captured the ark, they killed Hophni and Phinehas. That fulfilled the prophecy we saw last time in chapter 3. And when their father, old Eli, heard the news, he fell off the bench he was sitting on, broke his neck, and died. Here's the account. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 4. There was a runner who came with the bad news. He came to Shiloh. He finally got to Eli. And verse 16 says, the man said to Eli, I am he who's come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he, Eli, said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Phinehas' wife was pregnant. And when she heard the news, it was so shocking to her that she went into premature labor. She did bear a son. She named him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And then she also died. So this is one of the lowest points in the history of Israel. Let's read it. Verse 19. 
Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Echabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God to the Israelites. Now, of course, God, no box is going to keep God. You know, God fills the universe. But he told Moses, I'm going to meet with you here at the mercy seat, the lid of that ark between these two cherubim. That's where he met with them. So in their minds, it's like they've lost God. Their gods failed them. Now, they're just totally misunderstanding God, of course. In chapter 5, we learn that the ark really doesn't sit very well with the Philistines. Their god, Dagon, falls face down in the presence of the ark. The next day, the Philistines set Dagon back in the upright position, and the day after that, they find he's not only fallen on his face, but his head and his hands are broken off. And at the same time, God sent these painful tumors on the Philistines. So eventually, the Philistines, this is in chapter 6, the Philistines decide to give the God of the Israelites a chance to take the ark back. <laughs> they made a, actually a pretty tough test out of it. They, they took two milking cows, each of which had a calf. They took those cows away from their calves, and they yoked them together and attached the cart to those cows to, to pull the ark and see what would happen. Now, we know what would normally happen. Those cows would not have left their calves. They would at least try to get back to them, but God was in control of those cows, and they pulled the cart approximately 15 miles directly from the Philistine city of Ekron to Beth Shemesh in Israel. So God was in control of that, obviously. The people of Beth Shemesh are amazed and delighted at first. They, they still really haven't repented of their sins. They haven't think, got things right with God. They haven't figured this out. But they got the ark back, and they think this is a miracle, and it is. But they haven't changed their attitude. So they treat the ark irreverently, and God kills 70 of them for the way they treated the ark, which he said is holy. So they say, I'm not sure I want to do, have anything to do with this. They were kind of like the Philistines. This is a little too much for us. So they begged the people of Kiriath Yerim, it's a little town about 12 miles down the road from Beth Shemesh, to come get the ark. And they do. So when they get it back to Kiriath Yerim, the ark is only about 10 miles from Jerusalem. And you know what? It stayed there for years and years and years. Kiriath Yerim, maybe 70 years or so, until Saul had become king and died in battle. And then David became king after him. So around 1010 B.C., David moved it to the tabernacle that he had pitched for it in Jerusalem. Did not move it back to Shiloh. Did not move it back to the tabernacle of Moses. He pitched a brand new tabernacle for it. In chapter 7, for the next 20 years after this fiasco, we find Samuel's been going from city to city, urging the people of Israel, repent, turn back to God. And slowly they're beginning to wake up. They're beginning to listen to Samuel. Probably took him some time to get around everybody and teach them the truth. But they're beginning to turn back to God. Look at verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asteroids from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. 
Now, when the Philistines heard about this big gathering of the Israelites at Mizpah, they thought, we're going to attack. This would be our chance to really overwhelm a whole bunch of them. So the Israelites begin to panic again, but Samuel begins to pray. In verse 9, we read, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So the Philistines are routed. And at that point, Samuel says, I don't want you to forget this. This is important that you remember this. So he set up a standing stone. We've talked about those before too, a memorial. Set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. Remember that? Here I raise mine Ebenezer means stone of help in the Hebrew, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So he's called on the Lord and the Lord's delivered them and he's put up a standing stone so they won't forget. Eventually we'll get to chapter eight. We find that Samuel is now an old man and Samuel has decided to appoint his two sons to help him judge the nation. Verse one, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Here we go again. Doesn't it sound exactly like Eli with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, all over again? Now we're going to learn later when we get to chapter 12 that Samuel handled this completely differently than, than Eli did. So it's important. Samuel handled this better than Eli did, but he's got the same kind of problem. So the people, they think, wait a minute, this is not working for us. We don't think it's going to work for your sons to be judges. They're not like you, Samuel. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Isn't that good? His, his reflex is to pray. That's what our reflex ought to be. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. So God tells Samuel to warn the Israelites. They're not going to like the king as much as they think. And Samuel warns them of what life's going to be like under a king. But they're not, he's not persuading them to wait. They, they're convinced that if kings are good enough for the nations around them, they're good enough for us. So the king, Lord said, okay, give, give them the king now. Now, I think when we study the Bible very carefully, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, the Lord had planned to give them a king all along. I think their sin is they just got ahead of the Lord. But they, it was still wicked. You know, they, they, they sinned against God, and they suffered some very painful years because of it. So I think the lesson here for us is we better think very carefully before we get ahead of the Lord. Have you ever done that? You look back and realize God was working things out in his time, but we got impatient. We wanted something to happen now. <laughs> Can you think of another example of that in the scriptures? Maybe Abraham and Sarah, remember? God made them a promise. But it took a long time in their minds for God to fulfill that promise. And they thought, he needs some help. <laughs> 
<laughs> so they just took things in their own hands, remember? They wound up with a boy named Ishmael. It led to years and then centuries and now millennia <laughs> of conflict and pain. It's not a good idea to get ahead of the Lord. It causes a lot of pain. Most of us can identify. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to a man named Saul, a man who would soon be their new king. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is what they're looking for. Israel wanted a king who would be impressive, <laughs> a man who would impress them, <laughs> and a man, hopefully, who would impress the nations around them. Now, they're very superficial about this, but the Lord knew exactly what they wanted. So he said, okay, I'll give you the kind of king you're looking for. He knew that Saul was the kind of guy they wanted, tall and handsome, and his dad was wealthy. And, but at this point, there's no hint of holiness or godliness about Saul at all. In fact, when Saul goes looking for his dad's donkeys, his dad's donkeys had gotten lost. And for time's sake, I'm not going to try to read all of that, but it's in verses 4 through 6. Saul finds himself in the same town that Samuel just happens to be in. And we see God's supernatural providence all through this account. We've talked about the providence of God before. But, you know, when he learns that God's man Samuel is near, it doesn't seem to even occur to Saul that maybe, maybe we could learn some spiritual wisdom here. Maybe we could profit by listening to this man teach us about God. No, his mind's just on the donkeys. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. <laughs> That's his attitude. No hint of any kind of spiritual interest here. But you know what we see all the way through here? God, as he always does, is at work engineering these events. Providence, all the way through here. First, his dad's donkeys just happen to get away and get lost. And so when Saul's dad learns that they're gone, he just happens to give Saul the responsibility to go find them. And as Saul and his servant are looking for those lost donkeys, he, they just happen to end up in a certain town that God made sure Samuel just happened to be in at the same time. God's at work here. So we get to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Saul, of course, had no idea he was being sent to Samuel by the Lord, but he was. <laughs> and you, Samuel, shall anoint him, Saul, to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. In verse 17, when Samuel sees Saul, God says, there he is. And Samuel begins to talk with Saul. And at first, Saul really seems very modest, very humble. Listen to him. Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? But we know that eventually there's going to be a terrible change in Saul after he's been king for a while. He's going to lose this humility, that's for sure. Samuel then honored Saul with a meal, verses 23 through 24, and verses 25 through 27, we find they talked together a long time. And undoubtedly, Samuel told him in those conversations that Israel's demanding a king, 
And God says, you're the man. You're going to be it. So chapter 10 begins with Samuel pouring oil over the head of Saul, anointing him to be the king. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Then in verses 2 through 7, Samuel gives Saul three signs. He's confirming in Saul's own mind that God really is doing this. So this is for Saul's benefit. He said he's going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb who will tell him that the donkeys have been found. He said, then you're going to meet three strangers and they will give you two loaves of bread. He said, then you're going to meet a group of prophets who will be prophesying and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Saul, and you're going to prophesy too. And all three of those things came to pass, just like Samuel said. So there's no reason at all now for Saul to doubt. It was not just Samuel's idea. This is God supernaturally bringing these things to pass. And when Saul begins to prophesy, everybody who knew him realizes something amazing has happened to Saul. This is not the old Saul. In verse 6, we read that Saul was going to be turned into another man. He's going to be changed. And then in verse 9, when Saul turned to leave Samuel, we read that God gave him another heart. God's doing something inside Saul. Can't be explained other than the work of God. Look at verse 11. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? It was a shock to them. Evidently, he had shown no indication of being a particularly spiritual man, or they might have said, well, this is to be expected. He's been a pretty godly guy. No, no, he hasn't been. So they're shocked. God's doing something. When Saul's uncle finds him in verses 14 through 16, Saul admits that Samuel told him about the donkeys, but he doesn't tell him anything else. Maybe he realizes, I need to wait for God to establish this. Nobody's going to believe me. Uh, it, it could be that he's a little embarrassed. It could be that he's frightened. Everything has happened. He knows everything's going to be unbelievable to his uncle. I, I don't know. But anyway, he doesn't tell him. So in verses 20 and 21, God uses lots, the drawing of lots, to confirm that Saul is the one he has chosen. So now the people watch this and they can see for themselves that Saul is the one God has chosen. But then when they look for him, they can't find him. Look at verse 21. He brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Metrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? The Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? whom the Lord has chosen. There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! They were so impressed. This guy looks so good. He looks like a king. But Saul seems genuinely embarrassed here. He doesn't seem to want to be in the limelight. And it could be real humility. could be lack of faith. could be just bewilderment. He's just not sure what's going on. But anyway, when they find him and he's announced as king, the people are excited. They're shouting, Long live the king! They finally have what they want. They have this tall, Good-looking man, wealthy dad, human king, 
And I'm sure many of those Israelites are thinking, at last, we have our own king. We're like the other nations. And look at him. So good looking, so tall. Wait till the other nations see this guy. Man, we're going <laughs> to impress the daylights out of him. <laughs> oh, it's going to get sad, though. So as chapter 10 closes, Saul seems to be off to a pretty good start. Unfortunately, as we learn more than once from God's word, and of course, just from history, getting off to a great start doesn't always mean having a great finish. In chapter 11, the Ammonites, under the leadership of a vicious man named Nahash, threatened to overwhelm the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead is a town on the east side of the Jordan River, and we tend to not think of that as being part of Israel. We think, well, if they're on the east side, they're not in Israel's business, are they? But you may remember that half the tribe of Manasseh was on the east side of the Jordan, and so were the tribes of Gad and Reuben. They'd settled there on the east side of the Jordan earlier. So Israel actually was on both sides of the Jordan River. Jabesh-Gilead was in the region of the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Nahash demanded a complete surrender along with putting out the right eyes of the men of the city. He was very brutal. So when Saul heard it, he was furious, rightly so, and he raised an army, chopped up a yoke of oxen, sent the pieces of oxen flesh all over the land and threatened to chop up the oxen of men all over Israel who didn't answer the call to resist the Ammonites. He said, you got to come. This is serious. And he's trying to show them how serious it is. So Saul went to battle and he did defeat the Ammonites. And he does seem to recognize it was the Lord who gave him the victory. That's in verse 13. In verse 15, we find him worshiping and rejoicing in the Lord. So again, he seems to start really well, but we know the rest of the story. There's such an important lesson for us here. It's very common. It's very sad, but it's very common for spiritual leaders today to begin the ministry with great fear and trembling. There's a sense of awe that God's put them into a position of spiritual leadership, teaching or preaching or whatever it might be. And they realize, man, man, Lord, if you don't come through, I'm, I'm going to be a mess here. I'm totally dependent on you. But after some battles, I'm talking about spiritual battles now, or maybe after some sermons have been preached, or maybe after some Bible studies have been taught, what can happen is we can lose the edge of that awareness of our dependence on the Lord. We got to keep reminding ourselves, if he doesn't work through us, it's going to be a mess. That's true the rest of our lives. But gradually, we can begin to sort of un almost unconsciously, subconsciously, I think I know how to do this now. I know how to prepare these sermons, or I know how to prepare these lessons. And instead of seeking God's direction, instead of seeking God's power and God's wisdom, we get to thinking subconsciously, we can handle this. I've got this. We've learned the mechanics. We can write sermons. We can write Bible studies. And maybe we might not notice that the Lord's left us. The power's gone. Very sad and very scary. Saul started well, but eventually he's going to lose his way badly because he's going to get overconfident in himself. But now Saul has led them to victory over the Ammonites. He's accepted by Israel as the king. Earlier, some of the Israelites had just not been convinced yet that he should be king, but now they're convinced. So now they have a big coronation ceremony. And Samuel uses this opportunity to address the people. It's a very strategic and key moment. So we find that address that he gives them in chapter 12. Now again, even though Saul's gotten off to a good start, Israel has been guilty of sin when they said, we don't want Jehovah to be our king. We want a king that we can see. We want a king like the other nations around us. Samuel's very blunt about this. He says it this way, and I'm looking 
at the last part of verse 17 of chapter 12. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. They were in effect saying, we don't want God. We want a man. Now, God had planned for them to have a king. They just got ahead of God and they wanted to do things their way. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. But there's an interesting clue, even way back before Israel had even become a people. You remember Abraham, they look at Abraham as their founding father, you know, that God spoke through Abraham. Do you remember when Abraham met Melchizedek? This is long before Jacob's even thought of, you know, and much less the sons of Jacob. Israel is not a nation. Uh, But Abraham's there, and and Abraham defeated Keterleomer and rescued Lot. And then we're told that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Interesting, isn't it? Salem is Jerusalem. And by the way, his name meant king of righteousness. And then in the book of Hebrews, we learn Melchizedek is pointing us to the coming Messiah, both as the great high priest, but also as, as a king, his kingship. Israel wasn't even a nation, but already God's revealing them. I've got a king in mind for you. There's a king coming. You remember in Hannah's song when, when Samuel was born and she was praising the Lord? In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, she said the ad, in her song, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. They didn't have a king. And by the way, his anointed means his Messiah, remember? So Hannah's prophesying the coming of the Messiah as king long before there was any king at all in Israel. And you remember that when Messiah comes, he's going to be, the Bible prophesies this, he's going to be descended from the tribe of Judah, the house of David, remember? And when Jacob blessed his sons just before his death, he said the scepter, that's the sign of a king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The king will come from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The future kings will come from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah himself comes from that very tribe of Judah. You remember when Moses was bringing them into the promised land before they got there, uh, Balak tried to use Balaam to stop them to pro- and, and God just used Balaam to prophesy the truth. Here's what Balaam said. He said, I see him, but not now. Behold, I see him, not, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. There it is again, a scepter. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. In Deuteronomy 17, this is near the end of Moses' life. Just, you know, He gives these speeches in Deuteronomy just before he dies. God gave Moses a prophecy, and he gave him some instructions that they were to follow when he finally gave them kings. So God knew he was going to give them kings. Look at this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And of course, we know that God planned from the very beginning that Jesus would be the ultimate king. God, the son himself, he would be king above all kings and he would be a descendant of King David. But during the life of Israel as a nation, through the time of judges, God was their king directly. When enemies came against Israel, God, as their king, would raise up generals to fight those enemies. 
men and women to serve as temporary deliverers. We call them judges. You may remember an interesting account. At one point during that period of time, the Israelites tried to make one of their judges into a king, but he refused. Do you remember that? It was Gideon. After Gideon had been used by God, you know, God raised up Gideon as a tremendous judge and military leader, and God supernaturally delivered Israel in a miraculous way through Gideon to defeat the Midianites. And after that, some of the people wanted to make him the king. Look at verse 22 of Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. So they're saying, please be our king. You can start a dynasty. You be the king, your son be the next king, your grandson be the next king. Rule over us. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood that God was their king. So he had the grace to say, no way. God's your king. It's not time for a human king. No way would I or my son try to take that role. So he said, you remember what happened, though? Uh, in spite of what he said, his son Abimelech, who was not a godly man at all, tried to get himself established as king after Gideon died. You can read about him in Judges chapter 9. But he's the one, if you remember, we talked about him a few weeks ago, tried to take a city named Thebes and, and a woman dropped a millstone from a tower onto his head and killed him. Remember that account? Anyway, he, he tried to be a king. didn't work for him. <laughs> Towards the end of that period of Judges, before God raised up Samuel, things just got worse and worse and worse. Remember this. And twice in Judges were told, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Instead of really letting God be their king, they decided we'll be our own little kings. And that's the final verse in the book of Judges. So they really weren't following God as their king, and they didn't have a human king. There was just every man deciding, I'll be my own king. By the way, does that sound familiar? That's pretty much the way most Americans want it today. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. We don't want anyone telling us that our behavior is wrong. We don't want anyone telling anybody else that their behavior is wrong. We just, everybody needs to do what's right in his own eyes. <laughs> judges. And if we say, you know what? God says that behavior is sinful and it leads to a bad outcome. They say that's intolerance. And we're not going to intolerate that. <laughs> They're very intolerant toward people that don't just say whatever you want to do is fine. So everybody's doing what seems right in their own eyes. Here we are. America, 2022. So some of the most depraved, disgusting behavior in the whole Bible, is we can read about it in those final chapters of Judges. Well, now we're ready to look at Samuel's message to Israel. And, and what he's doing here is turning the leadership over to King Saul. So I want us to look at that more carefully, but, but for time's sake, we'll stop here right now and we'll look at that very important message next time. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us things from 1 Samuel that relate to our own lives today. Because Lord, in so many ways, we can identify with how those people were feeling, what those people were thinking when they tried to get ahead of you. Lord, most of us can remember times when we've tried to get ahead of you. And we thank you that over and over you promised them if they would just repent, you would forgive. And so we thank you for that. Thank you that you forgive us when we repent. Help us to be quick to repent, Lord. Help us to learn to wait on you and to do things in your way at your timing. And Lord, we also are teaching us here as we study the life of Saul, how easy it is sometimes to start well but finish badly. 
So help us all to realize how totally dependent we are on you throughout our lives. Lord, if you don't come and use us, if you don't come and work through us and lead us and accomplish your purposes through us, we'll mess it up. We know we will, Lord. So we ask you to to forgive us and we ask you to help us keep our focus on you no matter what to the end of this life. Help us, Lord, to stay in that battle and to be faithful to you by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.